Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. One of the most life-changing classes I've ever taken was a class at Stanford taught by Anne Firth Murray called International Women's Health and Human Rights. And I've talked about this class before and I'll probably keep talking about it on future episodes. This was a really life-changing class and it examined the lives of women from birth to childhood to adulthood to old age, and especially focused on women in the developing world. And I've wished so many times that every human being could take a class like that. It was so important in my education and as a citizen of this world. So I was really excited when my friend Becca Archibald, who did our episode on Sarah Grimke's letters on the equality of the sexes, she's a great friend of mine, and she gave me a book for Christmas last year that's called The Moment of Lift, How Empowering Women Changes the World. And I kind of flipped through the book and discovered that this book covered so many of the same topics that we covered in that class. And with really clear and precise language And so as I picked the book up to actually read it a few months later, I was just blown away. Just so many gripping stories from the author. The author is Melinda French Gates, and she's done humanitarian work all over the globe. So I, as soon as I read the book, I immediately added it to our reading list for the podcast. And as I was thinking about who would be just the best reading partner for this book and to participate on the podcast, I thought of my friend Sarah Abbasi, who was in the class with me at Stanford. And I was so, so excited when Sarah agreed to be my reading partner. So thank you so much for being here with us today, Sarah. It will become apparent immediately as as listeners listen to the episode, what a just a treasure of wisdom and experience that you have on these topics. So thanks for being here. Oh, thank you, Amy. It's an absolute pleasure and honor to participate in this podcast. It's something when you first told me about it, I was so excited to do it. And so I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Oh, great. Well, so we, we always start with an introduction. So I'd love it if you could introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your story, where you're from, and just some things that makes you who you are. Sure. I'm happy to do that. So I'm Sarah. Um, I was born in Lahore, Pakistan, um, and grew up around the world. So I spent the first uh, nine years of my life living in different cities across Pakistan. My father was um, in the government, and so we moved almost every every two years uh, as a result of his job. And when I was nine, we my family moved to Brussels, Belgium, uh, and we lived there for about four years. In Brussels, I attended French Catholic schools, uh, an all-girls school, and it was quite different from I, we. My brothers and I had attended, you know, English medium schools in Pakistan, and then moving to Brussels, this complete immersion in a different language, different culture, and I did not speak a word of French, and yeah. I still remember, like right at the beginning, you know, you're sort of just lost, and it was third grade, and I it was just gibberish around me in class. Wow. And um, my during recess, I still remember my some of my classmates teaching me, you know, that the, the um, numbers it, they'd say like un, deux, trois, quatre, and then teaching me the alphabet. And now thinking back in the context of this book, it's almost like sort of that first moment of lift, you know, little girls Aww. helping a little girl who was brand new to their school, um, brand new to that culture, and of course within. Six months, my brothers and I were fluent in French uh, because all the subjects were in French. 
And um, when I was 13, uh, we moved to Manila, Philippines. My father joined the Asian Development Bank there. And so we attended the um, international school, which was, uh, I guess, sort of the American school. And back to English language. But what was really different was um, the French schools had been so strict, you know, very sort of traditional. When the teacher would walk into the classroom, you'd stand up and say, uh, bonjour, Sir Therese. Everybody would stand up. And the schools in Manila or the American school, it was a culture shock to me because I still remember my first class, I'm sitting down, the teacher walked in and I almost stood up. Thank God I didn't because I would have looked like (laughs) such an idiot. But, you know, I'm sitting, everyone else is sitting, the kids, some of the students had their feet on the desk. And I just thought like, how odd, like, aren't you supposed to stand up and greet the teacher? So it was a completely different culture, but um, an amazing experience because I had friends from literally around the world. It was truly an international school, um, friends from around the globe. And so my exposure to different cultures, different languages, different religions at an early age, I think sort of really kind of helped shape me, shape the person I am. And then when I was 18, I came to the US for university. I attended Bucknell University in Pennsylvania for a couple of years. And um in my first semester, I at Bucknell, I was engaged. It was a an arranged marriage, and it's interesting that you know I grew up in, and I'll share stories through the course of this podcast. But I grew up in a pretty liberal, progressive household, a liberal, progressive family. Yet at the same time, in certain ways, it was quite traditional that I was raised with the mindset that you know when I, in quotes, come of age around 18, 19, 20, um. I will have an arranged marriage to someone that my parents choose for me. And of course, I would have a say. I, I could say yes or no. But it was just it was just a part of me. I never questioned it. It was just sort of how I was raised. Interestingly enough, it was different from my brothers. That was not the expectation for them. Mm. Um, so anyway, so I, I was engaged at 18, got married halfway through Bucknell, moved to California with my husband, um, okay, stop though, Sarah, oh. because I have to know more about this. That's too interesting. So how how many times did you know your fiance? My husband, like, my yeah, fiance did then? you know him? Um, I did not. We we knew the family, so the family was good friends. I knew his younger siblings. He's eight years older than me. So you know, over oh. the years, as especially as we were living around the world, his family, his parents, and his younger brother and sister would come and visit and they would stay. So it's interesting because this way his parents, unbeknownst to me, I guess, were probably looking at me and the family to see would this be a good fit, which I think is maybe how a lot of these arranged marriages, they're rare now. They're not as common now, I think, in Pakistan as they were Mm -hmm. then. But that's another way to find out about the family, right? The family values and all, and are there similarities and are, are the families comparable? So I, I guess I was kind of being watched, with, you know, maybe without really even knowing. So I knew his siblings, I knew his parents. And and interestingly enough, my husband, Soheb, at that time when I was growing up, would be given as an example to me, I, I share with my kids, you know, because my parents would always say like, you know, so his parents would share with my parents growing up, you know, how he's done in school, maybe mm. just as a way to out of pride, you know, he's first in class, he he, mm. he got 100% marks or whatever. So we would get that lecture from my parents, I still remember, you know, so he did so well in school, why can't you guys do that well in school? And I remember thinking like, oh my God, this little piece of, you know, like, why am I always being compared to this guy? And it, it turns out that was whose parents 
proposed for me when I had finished high school. Um, And so I didn't know him. I, my response was, I would like to meet him first before I say yes or no, because we hadn't met each other. So when I went to Bucknell with my father, he'd come to drop me off at university. So he was working um, at Oracle in Chicago. And so he came to visit and that was our first meeting. That was the first time he visited. So he was there for the weekend. I was on campus. My father was off campus. And so we'd we met for lunch. Um, we, you know, went for a drive. It's kind of like, I guess what you, it was like literally condensed be dating uh-huh. because over the course of the weekend, we got a chance to meet, you know, at lunch or drives or dinner, but then we were engaged for two years, which uh-huh. um, gave us a chance to get to know each other. And the way I guess I think about it is if over the course of those two years, as we got to know each other, I'm assuming, I'm guessing that if we found like, okay, we're not compatible at all, this is just not going to work, that either one of us could have said, no, this is not a good fit. And I'm assuming that, you know, it's easier to break an engagement uh, than it is a marriage. So we, I guess we courted, you could say, for those two years um, and then got married in um, 1984 in December. Wow. Amazing. Okay. Thanks for humoring me with some more questions about that. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. Absolutely. So then we, as I said, moved to California and, but because I had stopped studying or university halfway through, I transferred to Santa Clara University, finished my undergraduate in, um, in business marketing, and then sort of started the family right away. And that way it was Melinda talks about that a little bit in her book about sort of the traditional, without really even realizing you fall into that sort of traditional role Mm -hmm. of the husband as a primary breadwinner and, you know, the wife at home. And so that was basically our kind of marriage where I was home with the kids. And then when, when they were, before my third child was born, I decided to go back to school and did a part-time master's. I felt like I needed some, you know, mental, intellectual stimulation and I did a master's in international relations. And once I was done, this is interesting. I know we've segued quite a bit from the book. We'll get, we'll get back to it. But I was finished. I finished my master's in international relations with a focus on women in development and was looking to volunteer somewhere because my older children were young. Uh, they were five and six. And I got in touch with this small nonprofit called the Global Fund for Women. And they were still based in Palo Alto. Mm-hmm. And I called them up and Anne Firth Murray, who you referenced earlier in the podcast, who taught that class on women's health, women's right. She's the, the founder of Global Fund for Women. Yes. And I'm pretty sure she answered the phone and I said, you know, I, 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 I introduced myself and I said, I would love to volunteer. And she said, you know, we were a very small outfit. We really are not set up for volunteers. And I said, I will do anything. I will seal envelopes that you will send to your donors. <laughs> I, I just want to be a part of your organization. And she was so gracious. She said, sure, come on in. And, you know, I went in and then it ended up being like I would go in three times a week. And this was pre-computer as, you know, grant proposals now are submitted online. Grant proposals for from organizations from around the world, women's organizations were submitted in paper. And so my volunteer job position was to look through them, summarize what the ask was, summarize what the organizations were doing. And then file them into different areas for, you know, whether it was Latin America or or Africa or Middle East. And so I did that for about six months. And which I think is just so wonderful that the class I ended up taking where I met you, mm-hmm. women's health um, and women's rights, was 
it was also where I wrote the research paper on honor killings that then became my thesis yeah. topic that we'll talk about later. But um, over the years, then I got involved with different nonprofit organizations. And one of the ones that I've been involved with the longest is a U.S.-based nonprofit called Developments in Literacy. The acronym is DIL, D-I-L. And it's based out of L.A. And what they do is they set up and run schools for girls in the um, uh, villages across Pakistan. And even that was interesting how I came across that. It was a brown bag lunch at the Asia Foundation in San Francisco, and the executive director was presenting. And I thought, this is amazing because they work on the ground in Pakistan, community-based schools, work with villagers to see if there's even a need identify local teachers from that particular village. So I really liked how they worked. They were very thoughtful, mindful of their approach. And I ran into the CEO, uh, their CEO in LA at an event. And I said, I would love to support you. I would love to donate. And she said, I have a better idea. Why don't you start a chapter in San Francisco? And, and chapters, what they do is raise funds and raise awareness. And so in 2001, I started a chapter and we would do fundraisers and we would host these annual galas with, you know, entertainment and having sort of 300 people attend and raise funds and share what, what Dill does. Then I was board chair for, for Dill. So there were a number of other organizations, but this is the one that I sort of is closest to my heart. Um, it works in Pakistan, educating girls. And yeah, so a little bit about sort of the nonprofit work. And then as I cycled off that, I thought I'd love to go back to school. And then that brought me to the MLA program, which was absolutely amazing. And then my meeting with you in that phenomenal class, uh, women's rights and women's health. Wow. Fantastic. Sarah, thank you so much for sharing. So the next question I like to ask listeners is just about the phrase breaking down patriarchy and what that means to you or, you know, as you've thought about participating on a podcast called Breaking Down Patriarchy, what the kind of what that means. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I thought about it. I actually even just love the title, Breaking Down Patriarchy. And what what it means to me, just thinking about it, thinking about the title, thinking about your podcast, to me, it means really changing traditions and practices of a system, any system where men determine all the rules of behavior um, and women follow. So, you know, whether it's in the culture or family, society, and so that patriarchal culture society is where men are just considered to be superior to women, superior in intellect, in ability, in authority. And breaking down those traditions, to me, means creating a culture that is more egalitarian, where men and women have equal say. Um, they work as partners, whether, it could, whether it's in a house or whether it's at work. Um, so that's basically sort of what it means to me. But I wanted to share a quick anecdote because I thought about like, okay, how does that translate in my family? What does that mean to me personally? And I, I wanted to share this with you. And it's something I alluded to earlier where there was, you know, parts of sort of my family, there's a side that was sort of very progressive and liberal. And this is where that comes into play is when it was time for me to attend university. Um, and as I had mentioned, I was at the American school or the international school in Manila, and looking at universities in the U.S., my father's friends, because, you know, they all sort of shared, or where's your child applying? Where's your daughter applying? And my father must have said, you know, she's looking at these schools in, in the U.S. 
his friends, his Pakistani friends, um, made comments that, you know, why why don't you just keep Sarah here in Manila? Because pretty much all of them had their daughters stay in Manila. They attended universities in, in the Philippines. And so their comments were, you know, just have Sarah attend university in Manila and send your boys, who, my brothers who are younger than me, send your boys to America. And my dad's response was um, that if my boys will go to America to study, so will my girl, you know, mm. so will my daughter. And I thought like, that was just so amazing and empowering and powerful. But to me, that's an example of breaking down patriarchy, mm. where it's just assumed like, you know, boys will do something sort of deemed better, go to a better school, better university, and the daughter doesn't really have to. But that my father's example, or the fact that he said, no, no, whatever my boys will do, my girls will do, to me is in a way changing that patriarchal tradition that's just mm. assumed and a given in so many families and communities. Awesome. Yes. I mean, it changed your life trajectory, obviously. And then it's really neat that he also said it out loud to other people because then that can plant seeds too, because the more people we see doing something, the more normal it becomes. And that is how culture changes, right? With those conversations among people saying, no, 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 we don't have to just go along with this. There's, there's another way. You're absolutely right. Because it's sort of a lot of times you're influenced most times by your yeah. peers, yep. people you respect, admire. And so absolutely. And, and there's examples of that throughout this book, as Melinda alludes to different stories. But you're absolutely right. It plants that seed, which is really important part of that, the change um, for change to happen in a community. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing, Sarah. That's that's great. Okay, the last step before we start the book is just briefly introducing the author, and I'll go ahead and do that. So Melinda Ann French was born on August 15, 1964 in Dallas, Texas. She is the second of four children, and her father was an aerospace engineer, and her mom was a homemaker. She is Catholic, and she attended Catholic school as she was growing up, where she was the top student in her class. At age 14, Melinda French was introduced to the Apple II computer by her father and then a school teacher who advocated teaching computer science to the girls introduced computer science at her all-girls Catholic school. And so it was from those experiences that she developed her interest in computer games and in the basic programming language. Melinda French graduated as valedictorian of her high school, and then she earned a bachelor's degree in computer science and economics from Duke University in 1986 and an MBA from Duke's Fuqua School of Business in 1987. And her first job was tutoring children in mathematics and computer programming. And then she became a marketing manager with Microsoft. And at Microsoft, she was responsible for the development of multimedia products. Melinda famously began dating Microsoft CEO Bill Gates in 1987 after meeting him at a trade fair in New York, and then they married in 1994. And they have three children, Jennifer, Rory, and Phoebe Gates. And I enjoyed hearing stories about their family. I loved it when she would kind of talk about the kids and marriage. And of course, we know that they just were divorced. The book was published right before they got divorced. So there was I don't know about you, Sarah, but it was kind of poignant to read about the marriage parts, knowing that sadness was happening that <laughs> wasn't reflected in the book. But 
back to Melinda's story. In in the year 2000, Bill and Melinda Gates launched the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which was reported as of 2020 to hold $49.8 billion in assets. And as co-chair of the foundation, Melinda sets the direction and priorities of the world's largest philanthropy. Just a couple of the multitude of amazing things that the foundation has accomplished. The foundation has donated billions of dollars to help sufferers of AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. It's protected millions of children from death at the hands of preventable diseases. And the foundation assisted in the eradication of polio. And the foundation's vaccination drives were responsible for helping to reduce deaths from measles in Africa. And because of that work, measles-related deaths have dropped by 90% since the year 2000. Melinda French Gates is also the founder of Pivotal Ventures, which is an investment and incubation company working to drive social progress for women and families in the United States. And as I just mentioned, Melinda and Bill Gates divorced in the summer of 2021, but she still goes by Melinda French Gates. So that's how we'll refer to her as we go through and share the passages of this book. So super excited to talk about this book. This was really one of my favorites. It was really hard to narrow down which quotes to share. I don't know if you felt that way too, Sarah, but I like literally wrote 20 pages of notes. So it was kind of overwhelming. So I recommend that listeners buy this book and read the whole thing, but we'll just discuss a few key points. And we'll start with you, Sarah, because I think that you wanted to share some things from the introduction. Yeah, thanks, Amy. No, I completely agree. It really was um, such an interesting book. The fact that she sort of goes out into the field and these amazing, not just anecdotes and stories, but like the the power of change, how people on the ground are changing uh, communities, societies, cultures. And it was, um, I've annotated so many areas, I've underlined so many pages, so completely agree. So the first point that stood out to me was at the, um, it's in the introduction, the introductory chapter, And it's where Melinda Gates describes the meaning of a feminist. Uh, She writes, being a feminist means believing that every woman should be able to use her voice and pursue her potential, and that women and men should all work together to take down the barriers and end the biases that still hold women back. And I I love that definition. I completely agree with it about in, in, in terms of just what men and women can do to break down the barriers that hold other women back. And I wanted to um, share two personal examples of how this definition of feminist came to life in my family. And so the first story is about my paternal grandmother, Jamila. Uh, Jamila was born into an aristocratic family in Jalandhar, Punjab, um, in India in 1895, She was married young, but separated from her husband when she was 18. And Jamila did not want to just sort of sit at home and sort of, you know, have the rest of the family pity her or uh, feel bad about her for having been separated. And and she wanted to get an education, which was quite rare. You know, if you think about it, this is, we're looking at, I think, early 1900s. So the fact that she wanted to get an education and the fact that there were educational opportunities for young women. So my grandmother's maternal grandfather was opposed to it. He just did not think it was appropriate for a girl from his family to attend school. So back to that sort of patriarchal 
culture and the rules and regulations and what's acceptable, what's not. Um, but my grandmother was determined to get an education and she applied and got admission into a, at a boarding school in Allahabad in a province about 700 miles away. And again, it's like, as I think about it, it's just, you know, I, I literally get goosebumps. Like this is probably 1913 and she's going from this, uh, Punjab, the province of Punjab to UP, it's, I guess you could compare it to like going from, I don't know, California to New York on yeah. a train in 1913 as a woman, but now this is a woman in India. Um, and there were, there, you know, there weren't very many women, even in the Western world attending university. And so my, my grandmother was actually helped by her mother and her older brother. So there are within her own family, she had sort of that support um, her mother gave her the train fare. Her brother took her the, to the train station. And from the stories I've heard, she went at night under the cover of darkness so that, you know, her grand, her maternal grandfather wouldn't know that she's leaving because then he would have stopped her. Mm -hmm. And after finishing her high school, my grandmother enrolled at one of the best women's universities in the state there, um, Isabella Thorburn College in Lucknow that still exists. And after her graduation, uh, and this to me again is remarkable. She worked as a minister of education for the Begum of Bhopal. And so India then, this was pre-partition before India par partitioned into India and Pakistan. So there were probably about 270 small states run by Maharajas, Maharanis. This particular state of Bhopal was run by uh, a Begum. I guess you would essentially call her a, a princess. And mm -hmm. so my grandmother basically ran her entire education system for the Begum of Bhopal before, you know, she married my grandfather, who was then a judge. That's a whole other story, but sort of he was a widower and a judge in Pnau. And from what I've heard, the stories, my grandmother would read the English newspaper to the Begum of Bhopal. And in it were articles that my grandfather, the judge, had written at that point. My grandmother and grandfather weren't married. And, you know, my grandmother would read out the articles or the op-ed pieces that my grandfather had written in that paper. Um, but I, I share that story because of that whole sort of that, that definition of feminist in, in that by that definition, my grandmother's mother and brother were true feminists, like helping her you know, achieve her dream, her ambition to attend school and helping her on her way to that other state so that she could go to a high, finish high school, she could finish um, university. And then the other example is also from my family and it's of my parents. My mother was married very young to my father. She was 16 years old. I think my grandparents felt like they found a good match in my father and married my mother off, but she was only 16 and hadn't finished high school. And so after my parents were married, I guess in a way, lucky for my mother that she came into my father's household my and my grandmother. So my father and my grandmother, Jamila, whose story I just shared, encouraged my mother to study. And so out of all of her siblings, I think her siblings have finished sort of high school undergraduate, but it would have been very easy for my mom, I'm assuming, to just sort of just sit back and, you know, start. And even though she did start a family, I was born when she was 17, but she yeah. completed high school, then she went on to complete her bachelor's, then her master's. And then when we were in Manila, while we were going to high school, she was studying for her PhD. 
Oh my goodness. So, um, you know, within, within our family, sort of that example of my grandmother, but then support she got and my mother and the incredible support she got from my father and her mother-in-law, my grandmother. To me, those are really two examples that highlight Melinda Gates' definition of a feminist. Wow. That, I got chills from head to toe and some tears in my eyes hearing about those, both of those stories. And your mother had you when she was 17. And then uh, to go through, to keep going to school and to earn a PhD, I'm just so inspired by that. I'm so glad you shared that. Wow. Okay. Well, I uh, wanted to share one very quick story from chapter one. And this is... so. So throughout the book, Melinda Gates shares a lot of uh, just stories that she has like on the ground with people all around the world. And this is a story from a country in Africa, and I didn't note which country it was, but this was somewhere on the African continent. I'm sorry I didn't note which country it was, but she said that she was riding in a car kind of right upon arriving in this country and hadn't spent time in this country yet before. And she says, quote, I remember driving outside one of the towns and seeing a mother who was carrying a baby in her belly, another baby on her back, and a pile of sticks on her head. She had clearly been walking a long distance with no shoes, while the men I saw were wearing flip-flops and smoking cigarettes with no sticks on their heads or kids at their sides. As we drove on, I saw more women carrying heavy burdens, and I wanted to understand more about their lives. End quote. Um, One thing I have to point out is I love her really non-judgmental curiosity where she says, "I I wanted to understand more about their lives, and that's a real theme throughout the book, showing her attitude of really wanting to just understand, to go in, to approach a situation and talk to the women and see what they were thinking and feeling. One thing I want to, want, that came to my mind, I guess, as I read this, this part is, I mean, it's just, it would be very upsetting to see that, right? To see a woman burdened with multiple children and a, and a huge burden on her head, wearing no shoes in the company of men who weren't even offering to help her carry any of that stuff. And they had shoes and she didn't, I'd be really upset. And I think she was, and that's why she wrote about it. But one thing that came to mind is that I've heard from several people, they'll they'll mention this kind of real sexist, terrible aspects of this or that culture. And then they'll reference kind of benevolently patriarchal Christian traditions as being kind of the antidote to that or the solution to the problem. And I know that my my religious tradition has huge numbers of conversions in developing countries. And a lot of times people will say like that our way of doing things is so much better because like look at these cultures where the men just let the women carry all this stuff on their heads. And a lot of women join our church and join other Christian churches because they're is an ethos of like men shape up like you need to be responsible for your wife and your children you need to provide for them you need to protect them and and so they feel like it's a real step up for them these women do like to have kind of a chivalrous type of of system and treating the women as angels instead of like donkeys to carry stuff and it's such an improvement for them 
So I agree that's an improvement, but I also insist whenever I have these conversations, and this is why I want to bring it up, that there's a third option. I, I think that that's a false dichotomy to say that either women are abused and completely like treated really as servants, or they'll be the angel in the house and we'll put them on a pedestal and they'll be in a gilded cage and they're the angel and not allowed to work and not allowed to lead. And I just think that that's, it's a false dichotomy to say that those are the only two options. The third option is for men and women and people of all genders to be equals and have a system of egalitarianism. And so I just I just wanted to point that out, that there's not just either this terrible thing or, you know, having men preside over women in a very patronizing way. I completely agree, Amy. It's almost like opposite, the extremes, you know, either, as you said, yeah, like yeah. they're treated as donkeys or sort of angels. And right. there is a third option. And I think we're beginning to see, like, you know, the, even sort of here, the younger generation is talking about unconscious bias and becoming aware of just assuming that if, if a woman is just, a, you know, assuming certain things about a woman because of the fact that she's a woman, as opposed to seeing her as an individual, as a person. And so that third option to me has men and women as equals, as partners, you know, not one protecting over the other, not one being protected by the other. And so whether it's in a family, whether it's at work, in a community, um, it, you really are as partners and you kind of, you know, encourage each other's strengths and weaknesses, but that's what partners do. And, and whether it's a physical strength or mental strength, but I agree there, there's a third, there is a third option. Okay. So for my, the, another moment that in the book that stood out for me was, um, I think it's in chapter two, when Melinda Gates shares the story of a midwife named Ati Pujiatsuti, I think. Um, Melinda met Ati during her trip to Indonesia. She describes Ati as a 19-year-old trained midwife working in a remote village uh, in Indonesia. And um, in her story uh, that, that Melinda describes, she says, many of the villagers were distrustful of Ati. Melinda writes, when she arrived in the village, she wasn't welcome. People were hostile and distrustful of out outsiders, especially young women with ideas of how to make things better. Somehow this young woman had the wisdom of a village elder. She went door to door to introduce herself to everyone. She showed up at every community event. She bought the local newspaper and read it aloud to anyone who could read. When the village got electricity, she scraped up the money to buy a tiny TV and invited everyone to come and watch with her, uh, end quote. Melinda goes on to describe how Ati slowly began to earn the trust of the villagers and to work in their village as a midwife, as a successful midwife and, and was there for quite a long time. And I think that earning the trust of people, first of all, I think Ati is remarkable that at that young of an age to realize, you know, you, you're coming from a completely different coming from the city and even recognizing that the people in a village would have a different mindset and attitude towards people from the city, which I don't think we appreciate that as much here in the States um, as, as we should, and we're maybe not as aware of it. So for this young woman, Ati, to recognize that, and as opposed to coming in, you know, guns blazing, say, here's how we're going to do things, being really respectful of the local culture, being respectful of the local customs and traditions 
and getting to know the people and earning their trust. I think that is the way, and that's something Melinda talks about over and over again. That is the way, once you've earned the trust of the people you are trying to help, whose lives you want to impact in a positive way, that's the way to go about doing it. And then it becomes sustainable. It's something Bill, Developments and Literacy, the nonprofit that I shared earlier, has done um, really well. Bill works to establish community-based schools, as I'd mentioned, primarily for girls in the villages throughout um, Pakistan. And right from the beginning, you know, we were really particular about meeting with local villagers, uh, sitting down with them, even before that began, even before the sitting down, because these are, again, villagers in villages in different provinces. Um, I need to explain that, you know, like here in the cities in Pakistan, for example, uh, Lahore, Islamabad, Karachi, they're a lot more, in quotes, modern, progressive. So you can see women walking around in in jeans and a T-shirt and, you know, very Western clothing, as you will see women in uh, traditional clothes, shalwar kameez with a scarf. When we go to the villagers and villages, we need to be really careful with how we dress because at mm. the way we dress right there, just very in a very physical way, shows them um, that we respect their local culture, that we respect who they are. So we would dress in traditional clothes. No one asked us to, no one insisted that we do, but we would just cover our head as a sign of respect for the local elders, local villagers. We would sit down with them and find out if there was a need for the schools, but more importantly, ask them to identify a local teacher from that village that we would then train because that was important so that they accepted that teacher as their own, someone from within their own village, as opposed to as Ati uh, obviously realized, because if you're coming from the outside, the villagers might be a little suspicious. You know, are they coming with other ideas to maybe sort of to brainwash in quotes, our girls. And so working with the local villagers who identifying a teacher who spoke the local language, somebody who understood their customs, traditions. It was really important for us at Dill, as it was for Ati and Melinda's example, to build the trust within the communities so that the parents and the teachers and the students at the Dill schools would see the schools as their own, as opposed to outsiders trying to influence their community. Hmm. That's such an important point. And that actually reminds me of um, a passage from chapter two that that I wanted to share too, if I can tack on to yours, because it, it highlights the same issue and I wanted to ask you a question about it. So um, in this same kind of section where she's talking about Ati in this this village in India, she talks about the local practices of breastfeeding. And she says, quote, historically, the mothers in the community would go to the Brahmin, a member of the priestly caste. And I have to throw in, this means a man, like a, a male <laughs> member of the priestly caste, right? And, and so resuming the quote, and ask the Brahmin when to start breastfeeding. And he would say, you can't let milk down for three days, so you should start after three days. False information is disempowering. Mothers would heed the advice of the Brahmin, and for the first three days of the newborn's life, they would give the baby water, which was often polluted. Wishwajit and Ati's team had prepared for this moment. They gently questioned traditional practices by pointing to patterns in nature that were part of the villagers' way of life. And then Melinda Gates goes on to say, you know, to talk about how these 
again, these were local people that were employed by the Gates Foundation, but like you had talked about, they had already, you know, established relationships. These were people from India. They were maybe from other parts of the country, but they had established relationships of trust. And so they showed like, look at the cow that has a baby calf and that calf drinks from its mother's, you know, right after it's born. And so they would use examples that that these people were familiar with. So then Gates goes on to say, quote, it's a delicate thing to initiate change in a traditional culture. It has to be done with the utmost care and respect. If love were enough to save a life, no mother would ever bury her baby. We need the science as well. But the way you deliver the science is just as important as the science itself, end quote. And you spoke to that too so eloquently, Sarah, but I wanted to ask a specific question because I'm thinking about this village and that system where they're go- where these women i mean if there if there was ever a like a really acute example of just like a visual of what patriarchy looks like it's mothers going to ask a man when to breastfeed a baby <laughs> like wow so i'm just i'm wondering if these women felt anxiety about disobeying the brahmin right that's their culture that's what i can very much relate to that from my own personal life like that's what you're su- supposed to do and you that's that means being a good person is following the rules that everyone's doing i wonder if they got a lot of pushback for disrespecting the brahmin I wonder if he was a beloved community member or a tyrant. Either way, it's hard to disobey, you know, and to go against what the the tradition is. So I'm just wondering if you've encountered this in your work or in your studies of like the master's thesis that you wrote. And I'm just wondering how you help empower women to make changes within entrenched patriarchies, because in some cases, I mean, what we're ask, what we would be asking them to do is go against their community. And sometimes that puts their lives in danger. Sometimes it's not just they'll be ostracized, but it, it can put them in physical danger to go against those patriarchal traditions, right? Oh, absolutely. It, absolutely. It can be incredibly dangerous, a matter of sort of even life and death. And for the women that do challenge those entrenched, deep-rooted patriarchal traditions, I think they're incredibly brave. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I'll share an example. Um, and there, there are so many instances of violence against women who have challenged patriarchal traditions, you know, not just in, in Pakistan. And I'll share an example from there, but around the world, all over yeah. the world. And so I wanted to just briefly describe the um, honor killing of this young woman, Samia Sarvar. Um, and I covered her case in my MLA thesis, my thesis was on honor killings. And I focused on Samia's case because most of the honor killings in Pakistan, based on my research, occur, take place in some of the more um, remote villages, uneducated families, you know, illiterate sort of communities. And Samia's case was prominent and made headlines when it happened um, because of, well, the public nature of the killing, and but also the fact that it happened in a educated, in quotes, you know, modern, progressive, uh, wealthy family. So Samia was killed in 1999 for seeking a divorce. Again, divorce is allowed in Islam. It's actually in the Quran. Women have the right to divorce. They have the right to choose marriage as well. They have the right to refuse marriage, but more importantly, they have the right to divorce. And divorce is allowed in the law in Pakistan. 
So Samia was born into an educated, wealthy family in Peshawar in northwest Pakistan. It's one of the more, I guess you could say, conservative, traditional provinces, um, if, if I can say that. Her father was a successful, wealthy businessman, and her mother was a practicing OBGYN. And Samia's family, I guess you could say, was conservative, patriarchal, and we've talked about what patriarchy means, but you know, in, in her family house, her father was the head of household. He was responsible for all decisions related to the family, uh, particularly decisions as to you know, who to marry. And so per their family tradition, Samia had an arranged marriage at 18. Um, unfortunately, her husband was abusive. And after a few years, Samia decided to separate and move back to her parents' home. And her father actually supported her decision to separate. She was living in, in her parents' home, and her father, in fact, barred her now um, estranged husband from visiting her. And But a few years later, Samia decided she actually wanted to get a divorce, but her parents were against it. Um, again, based on my research, her father said that divorce was not done and that her fam family would be shamed by it. So as I said, even though divorce is allowed in Islam and under Pakistani law, in Samia's community, in her family and in her society, divorce was considered taboo. It would have really sort of put a, I guess, dishonored the family in her, her parents' eyes. So Samia was resourceful. She had actually been attending law school. And so at her law school, she found out about a lawyer who could help her file for divorce uh, and about a private women's shelter where she could safely be away from her father. Uh, and, and both of these were in the city of Lahore, which is about 300 miles away from Peshawar, which is where Samia and her family were. So in the spring of 99, uh, while her parents were out of the country, Samia traveled to Lahore and stayed at the women's shelter. And in fact, I had visited Lahore in uh, December of 2019 and met with Samia's lawyer. I had a, a chance to speak with Samia's lawyer. I went to the law firm. I actually even ran into a women's rights activist who had worked at the shelter where Samia was. Um, and so I was able to find out sort of more details that were available in the newspaper. And so Samia had been afraid, obviously had been afraid of her father, her parents. She said, you know, her father will kill her for coming to Lahore, for, for filing for divorce. And so when Samia's parents returned from their trip, they were able to find out where Samia was and find, found out about her lawyer. And so they got in touch with Samia's lawyer and said they wanted to meet with her. And as I said, Samia was afraid to meet with them, meet, afraid to meet with her father. And so Samia's mother scheduled a meeting with Samia saying that she actually had the signed divorced papers from Samia's estranged husband. But as I said, Samia had been afraid to meet with her father, but she trusted her mother. And so she arranged to meet with her mother at the office of her lawyer. And on the morning of the meeting, Samia arrived um, at the law firm. And again, from what the human rights activist told me, Samia had seemed really excited at the shelter saying, you know, she'll finally have her freedom and was excited to go to the lawyer's office. So Samia is at the law lawyer's office at the security desk, and there was tight security, at least even when I sort of went a, a couple of years ago, Samia's mother arrived at the law firm. She told the guard that um, she had injured her foot and needed the help of her driver to help her walk. Um, 
the the I must I have to say that the law firm is really strict because they represent a lot of women that are you know sort of seeking shelter, seeking refuge. So they don't let just anybody in. So Samia's mother later on we find out faked this injury, and so she brought the driver with her. Samia was waiting in her lawyer's office. Samia's mother entered the law the lawyer's office. Samia got up to greet her mother, and the driver who had walked in directly behind the mother immediately shot and killed Samia. And he fired again and barely missed, nearly missed the lawyer, the the bullet ricocheted off the wall. And um, they immediately left the law firm. They actually took another lawyer as hostage so that they could sort of get away. So as as shocking and brutal as this killing was, it actually made it made headlines across Pakistan. People in Lahore were stunned that something like this could happen in, in broad daylight in a law office. And as they found out about Samia's family, that you know the father was this wealthy, successful businessman. But what was particularly shocking was that the um the killing had been enabled by Samia's mother. An OBGYN, you know, a physician, a doctor whose job it was to bring people in, uh, bring life into this world. Um, so newspapers condemned Samia's parents. There were all of these articles and, and uh, stories covering this incident. But equally shocking was the fact that in Samia's hometown of Peshawar, the reaction was the opposite. There was widespread support for Samia's parents. Newspapers there were uh, they they covered the story and or the the incident and um, quoted some of Samia's father's friends and colleagues publicly saying that since Samia's killing was in in accordance with their tradition it could not be a crime and so you know that was so shocking to not just outsiders but people within Pakistan in the city of Lahore and so the reason why I share this is back to your question. Amy, of if a woman goes against her tradition, and in Samia's case, you know, again, I'm not justifying the tradition of what happened to her, but in her mother's eyes, in her family's eyes, what Samia did was going so against their tradition that it 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 dishonored the family in the eyes of their community. That the only way they could take away that tarnish. Um, they could take away the dishonor was to kill Samia. And this happens to hundreds, if not thousands of women um, across Pakistan every year who are killed in honor-related violence. And then they're almost always killed by a male family member. And so back to you know, our conversation of how do you make this change happen? You can obviously, you know, sort of we're, we're shocked by what happened. Um, you, you were critical of the parents, but that is not enough. You know, something needs, something needs to be done. Something needs to happen. And that has to be a change within the culture where it is seen as not that it's wrong that someone like Samia filed for divorce, but that it's wrong that her family reacted the way they did. The family chose they chose, they basically chose to kill Samia to regain their honor. And that change um, will not happen if we from the outside say, yes, it is awful. It's horrible what happened. But we've got to work with community elders, with village elders, with people like Samia's father, with other community members. 
imagine if one of the um, Samia's father's colleagues had said, no, what was done was wrong. That was that goes against Islam. It goes against everything we stand for. It goes against the law that what was done was wrong. And that's where change will begin to happen is if Samia's father's and mother's peers and relatives and colleagues now condemn Samia's killing, condemn what happened. Unbelievable. Thank you so much for sharing that story, Sara. That's really harrowing and and a, a really potent way to illustrate that topic. Um, okay, so the next chapter that I wanted to highlight is chapter three. And this is a chapter where Melinda Gates talks about the importance of contraception. And she really, she talks about this several times in the book, and it's one of the big initiatives that she's taken up in her philanthropy. So she says this, quote, I visited Niger, a patriarchal society with one of the highest poverty rates in the world and extremely low use of contraceptives, an average of more than seven children per woman, marriage laws that allow men to take several wives, and inheritance laws that give half as much to daughters as to sons, and nothing to widows who don't have children. Niger was, according to Save the Children, the worst place in the world to be a mother. I went there to listen to the women and to meet those mothers. So then she talks about how she's talking with a 42-year-old mother named Adisa. And Melinda says, quote, Adisa had been married off at age 14, gave birth to 10 children, and lost four. After her 10th pregnancy, she visited the family planning center to get an IUD and has not been pregnant since. That's caused her husband and sister-in-law to look on her with suspicion and ask why she hasn't delivered recently. I'm tired, she told them. When I asked Adisa why she decided to get an IUD, she sat and thought for a moment. When I had two kids, I could eat, she said. Now I cannot. She receives from her husband the equivalent of a little over a dollar a day to take care of the entire family. She continues to say, Across cultures, the opposition to contraceptives shares an underlying hostility to women. The judge who convicted Margaret Sanger said that women did not have the right to copulate with a feeling of security that there will be no resulting conception. That judge who sentenced Sanger to 30 days in a workhouse was expressing the widespread view that a woman's sexual activity was immoral if it was separated from her function of bearing children. And she goes on to talk about um, the Comstock laws, which we talked about in our episode on Margaret Sanger's speeches. But Melinda Gates goes on to say the common thread in all these times and all these places is, she says, the decision to outlaw contraceptives was made for women by men, end quote. And I was really inspired by Melinda French Gates um, and her willingness to speak up about the Catholic Church's prohibition of contraceptives. She is a, a, a believing and practicing Catholic and she wrote a little bit about how, you know, deeply it hurt her that people said she wasn't a good Catholic if she spoke publicly in favor of, of contraceptives. And she was, you know, written about in Catholic publications in a really negative light. And that was personally hurtful to her. But she said that it it actually was her faith that inspired her care for the most vulnerable in our world. 
And to her, it was very clear looking, meeting these women and having this emotional connection, but also looking at the data. And she just said, you know, to, to help the most vulnerable people in this world, which she believes is her calling, it means helping poor women. And what poor women need is access to contraception. So I was really inspired by that part. I agree. And I think it's so important for someone like Melinda Gates, um, a Catholic. This is someone from uh, someone with a really powerful platform to speak out on the issue of access to contraception. And this is such a powerful example of someone within the system trying to change the system. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I completely agree. So another passage that stood out for me is in her fourth chapter, where she talks about the um, transformative power of education. She writes, the most transforming force of education for women and girls is changing the self-image of the girl who goes to school. That's where the lift is. If her self-image doesn't change, then going to school will not change the culture because she will be using her skills to serve the social norms that keep her down. That is the secret of an empowering education. A girl learns that she is not who she's been told she is. She is the equal of anyone, and she has the rights she needs to assert and defend. End quote. So this quote is particularly meaningful for me. I think it perfectly describes the way I was raised by my parents. And I've sort of given you several examples of, you know, what my father said to his colleagues about his daughter attending a school in America if his boys could. Um, but growing up, I was always reminded by my parents that I could do and be anything I wanted, that I just had to work hard at it. It wasn't anything different told to my brothers or to me. It was just sort of equally that you've just you know, we're, we're providing you this education and now it's up to you uh, what you want to do with it. But I also wanted to share the, the speaking about the transformative nature of education, how it's helped so many of the students that um, developments in literacy or DIL helps in, in Pakistan. You know, we've seen incident after incident, the sense of um, confidence and self-assurance that our teachers get. And these are, you've got to imagine, you know, sort of the remote villages in Pakistan, again, patriarchal societies, traditional communities. And we've talked about what the expectation is of a woman, what she can or cannot do and what she can say and what a village male village elder can or cannot do. And we have been seeing instances of these sort of youngish, you know, maybe in their mid twenties, school teachers who are now being approached by male village elders for advice, for guidance, you know, whether it's helping them read, I don't know, the prescription they're getting from a doctor, helping them, you know, whether wow. it's read the newspaper, but they're literally turning to these young women in some of these villages who are the teachers, who are the principals, sort of as the de facto village elder. Um, mm. And so the impact of that is, I think, tremendous because it's letting the other villagers know that these women um, are sort of the, the position, the high esteem position they hold in the community. But it's also sending a message to the girl, the students in the school of sort of, you know, the respect that women can have, what you can achieve with education. Um, so I think it, it, Melinda is absolutely right. There's a huge empowering a sense of empowerment that education brings, even if you are a girl, whether it's a Melinda Gates, who's who's attended, you know, some of the best schools and universities and working at some of the best companies in the world, 
or a community school in a village um, in Pakistan. So education absolutely is transformative. Hmm. Well, I had actually I had a question again from the same chapter, Sarah, and and you kind you a- answered a lot of it, but maybe I'll still ask it. I'm going to read a little passage and then see what you think about this. Um, she talks about the rates of girls' education at, uh, compared to boys, and she says, in Guinea, just one in four girls is enrolled in secondary school, while almost forty percent of boys are. In Chad, fewer than a third of girls are enrolled in secondary school but more than two out of three boys are. In Afghanistan, too, just over a third of girls are enrolled in secondary school compared to nearly 70% of boys. And of course, this book was written before the Taliban took back over. So we'll see what happens now in the future. But um, she continues and says, socially, women and girls don't need an education to play the roles that traditional societies have prepared for them. In fact, women getting an education threatens traditional roles. The extremists are saying to women, you don't have to go to school to be who we want you to be. So they burn down schools and kidnap girls, hoping that families will keep their girls home out of fear. Sending girls to school is a direct attack on their view that a woman's duty is to serve a man. End quote. And so... You just shared some really inspiring examples of communities that are actually changing that view, right? But I just, I, I, I did want to ask you when I read that passage, if you've encountered that pushback from men, especially among, you know, really traditional extremist groups who cite these reasons to not send girls to school. And of course, we know that that was true when the Taliban was in, in control before, and it was it was that reasoning, right? Like your role is to be at home, and edu- you know, getting educated will will threaten that practice and that that paradigm, right? So, how do you change that mentality? You know, it's interesting you say that. So, my I had assumed when I first got involved with the developments in literacy twenty years ago, and we we every year we'd go out um, to visit visit different schools in different villages because we wanted to know sort of you know what is happening on the ground? Are there any issues, concerns? My assumption was, and there's, by the way, as an aside note, there's about 25 million school-aged children who aren't attending school in Pakistan. Mm. And um, a vast majority of of those are girls. And so I had assumed it is because parents do not want to send their daughters to school. And and I'm sure that's the case in, in certain areas. But what we found overwhelmingly, it was the opposite. Parents are hungry to send their children to school. There is such a need. And the reason why, from what we discovered again in our with, with our sort of research and our trips out into Pakistan and some of these villages are, there aren't adequate schools for girls. Mm. Um, there's a lot more schools for boys, a lot of, more teachers, but a lot of the schools for girls are either really far away and it is not safe for girls to walk two or three miles to attend school. You know, these are like sort of back roads, villages. And for a young girl to walk alone, it's actually quite dangerous. Um, There's no proper functioning bathrooms. So you can sort of think what that means for for a young girl or middle school girl. Um, You know, the and, and the classroom, some of the schools we visited were literally a tin hut. And these are areas, parts of Pakistan, where it gets about 110, 112 degrees 115 degrees in the summer. Imagine sitting in a mm-hmm. tin hut. It's you're you're being you're baking. Yeah. Um, and so or the the 
teachers aren't coming to school. There's hundreds of what's called ghost schools, where these are schools on paper. Someone is receiving a salary, but no one is actually teaching at the school. So they're ghost schools, they're empty schools. So for, for a multitude of reasons, they're just, you know, poorly poor quality schools. Parents don't send their schools to uh, send their children to school. When Dill was opening the schools, we when we would ask, is there a need? Is there a demand? Do we do you want schools for your girls? Overwhelmingly, the response from mothers and fathers was yes. Hmm. And we started with elementary schools. And then they would ask us, will you set up a middle school? Will you set up a high school? And so there's a huge need demand because, again, you'll have a few instances where a father doesn't want his daughter to attend a school for whatever his reasons are. And you hear about, you know, he burned her books. But overwhelmingly, it's the opposite, where they want to send their girls to school. And in fact, our, the Dill schools did so well that a number of parents came and asked if they could send their boys to school. So now Dill schools are co-ed because the quality is so good. We train the te- hmm. teachers. And so um, we didn't have to work to convince parents to send their daughters to school. It was actually the opposite where they were asking us, build more schools or a neighboring village would come and say, can you please build a school in our village so that our, you know, our girls aren't having to walk a long distance. That's great to know. I mean, and, and of course you do get these, again, extremist groups that, that Gates is talking about, like Taliban or like Boko Haram or something. But it, it's, it sounds like what you're saying is that the vast majority of regular people families are more like what I thought of as Malala Yousafzai and her family. And it was her father that was her greatest champion and, and an outspoken activist for getting uh, girls educated. So that's, that's really great. Okay. Next chapter that I wanted to share is chapter six. um, And it's called when girls have no voice um, child marriage. And Sarah, you'll remember probably in our class, this was my big project in international human rights, um, women's health and human rights. I talked and did a presentation on child marriage. So this is a tender topic for me just because I'd, I'd done some research on it before. Melinda Gates writes about a trip in 2013 where she went to Ethiopia to talk to child brides. She says, when we arrived at the village, two other women and I were invited into a courtyard that was a gathering place for the village. It it had a tiny health clinic, a fire pit, and a small church where we would meet. There were very few people around. We brought no staff. The men with us were asked to stay back at the car. We wanted to have the best chance to hear from the girls, and so we left behind anything and anyone we thought might put them off. We entered the church, which was very dark inside with only a few small windows letting in the light. There were about 10 girls seated inside, and when my eyes adjusted to the darkness, I saw just how small they looked. They were tiny, like little fragile baby birds still growing up who hadn't even started to sprout their wings, and they were being married off. I wanted to put my arms around them and hug them and protect them. They were 10 or 11 years old, the age of my daughter Phoebe but they looked even younger. Half the girls were married, I was told, and half were still in school. So then she tells the story of how a lot of these girls had had a similar thing happen to them where their parents had asked them to help them get ready for a big party. And so the the girl would help her parents, her mother really, cook and clean and fetch water all day to get ready for this big party. And then right as the guests were arriving, the girl would be told 
that actually the party was for their wedding. And they were getting married right then to a man they had never met. And again, these girls are, you know, 10 or or 11. So they would get married right then and then leave their childhood homes and go with this new man, much older than her, to a village that this girl had never seen. And she would never go to school again. And she would assume the duties of a of, you know, the household and servitude and, and sex and having children for the rest of her life. So she then goes on to tell, she tells a story about child marriage in several different places. And it, it happens all over the world, including in Latin America, which is something I didn't know before we took that class, but it happens all over. Um, and Melinda Gates goes on to tell the story of a solution to this problem where they developed helplines in India. So if a girl is being threatened with child marriage, if she finds out my parents are going to marry me off today or tomorrow or whatever, she can call a number like a 911 number and police will come and break up the wedding and rescue her because it's against the law in a lot of these places, but they just practice it anyway. They just defy the law. And so, but the problem is, and, and, the author goes on to write and she says, many girls don't have cell phones. They don't have access to this, to uh, this intervention. They don't have support networks. They don't have a local police force that will come and stop the wedding. But also, and more important, when a young girl does get out of her marriage and goes back home, she goes back to the mother and father who wanted to marry her off. How's that going to work out? She has no power in that household. She thwarted her parents and perhaps shamed them. Do her parents take out their anger on her? And then the just a part that, that points out the patriarchal structure that men and women are both participating in. She says, when a family can receive money for marrying off a daughter, they have one fewer mouth to feed and more resources to help everyone else. When a family has to pay to marry off a daughter, the younger the girl, the less her family pays in dowry. In both cases, the incentives strongly favor early marriage. And every year a girl doesn't marry, there's a greater chance that she will be sexually assaulted and then considered unclean and unfit for marriage. So it's also with the girl's honor and the family's honor in mind that parents often marry their girls so young so they can avoid that trauma. And so, I mean, there's so many things to unpack there in terms of financial hardship and how that plays into this and sexual shame and how that plays into it and and the the patriarchal norms of you know and protecting girls from sexual assault and all of these problems are just compounding that are creating this problem where where parents both parents including the mothers are marrying their daughters off at at these young ages because there's no better option and I just appreciate it again. It's so heartbreaking and so frustrating. And I appreciate that the author that Melinda Gates points out the motivations behind why these parents are doing this and the complexities in the culture. And it's not an easy solution. It's a, it will require a lot of, you know, a multi-pronged approach and people on the ground doing work. And that's what her foundation is doing. So. No, I I completely agree. And you're so right, Amy, that as you point out, this is, there's no easy solution. It's mm-hmm. it's so complex and there's so many different aspects to this, right? So there's the the poverty, the social pressure, 
Um, oftentimes in a lot of these communities, girls, unfortunately are seen as a burden. It's another mouth to feed. And if you, and you know, these aren't ill-intentioned people, they're not evil people. And it's sort of like, if they can just marry the girl off and, and, and sadly, unfortunately, and against the law, they marry them off younger and younger so that they have one less mouth to feed. And, and maybe the hopes that, you know, she'll be taken care of. But as you said, she's often a a servant, a sex slave, a servant having babies in this other household. But it's, and this sort of ties into the, um, the, my next quote that I wanted to share about, you know, for us from the outside and even for on people on the inside, not coming from a place of judgment to say like, okay, yes, what they are doing is wrong. Yes, it is, it is hurtful. It's harmful, but that may change the life of one or two people, but we've got to come from a place of empathy. So that uh, reminds me of a part in, uh, it's in chapter six, where Melinda Gates shares a story of her mentor, Molly Melsing, um, who says that the challenging longstanding cultural practices um, takes empathy. She talks about the empathy barrier, and she describes that based on Molly's experience, um, and the quotation is, outsiders show little skill in projecting themselves into the lives of the people they wanted to help and had little interest in trying to understand why something was being done in a certain way, end quote. And then she goes on to add that often people get outraged by certain practices in developing countries and want to rush in and say, this is harmful, stop it, and that's the wrong approach. Outrage can save one or two, she told me, only empathy can change the system, end quote. And I think she's absolutely right. You know, you could be outraged and sort of rush in and save those one or two girls. But what is needed is a change in tradition, in cha- a change in the cultural, traditional practices that are harmful to women. And I think the way that this can come about is, and we've talked about this uh, before, is for people from within the community to challenge those practices. Uh, whether in the case of the honor killings, I described this, the instance incidents of Samia's killing, whether it's you know people from within the community to speak out against the practice of honor-related violence, uh, if it's communities where the uh, girls are getting married at a young age, for them to speak out and say, no, this is wrong, you know, let her finish her education, let her finish school. And so I think that the change has to come from within. And in my research, I found that there were a number of organizations um, working to educate men and women about women's rights. So this is specifically in Pakistan who are uh, specifically working in um, situations of honor-related violence where they're working with male elders um, to shift the focus that equates family honor with a woman's behavior to equating honor with a family's achievement um, you know, making a family's honor about other positive traditions that have been passed down the generations. But that will take time and it takes consistent effort because um, it's very quick to pass judgment and malign and say they're evil and it's wrong. But it takes a lot of consistent effort and time to, from within, um, change the system and change society. Hmm. Absolutely. If I can share just one more piece in it, it's another example that's on this topic too. And I'll just say too, one topic that we're not talking about, which 
was featured prominently in the book, but we are going to cover it in a different book because it it comes up in several different volumes. Is female genital cutting, and like I said, we're not going to talk about it today. But that was one really interesting thing too that we talked about in our class, Sarah, and that Melinda Gates talks about in the book is that it's often referred to and and used to be referred to as female genital mutilation. And it is like this appalling practice. But she talks about how if you go in as as a person from another country and another culture and another tradition, and you go in and you call something that is um, someone else's treasured practice that's been passed down through generations of their family members, and you call it something like mutilation, there's a lot of judgment that that carries. And so um, a, a better term is to call it, call it something neutral. And so they changed the term to female genital cutting. And she talks, and, and I just thought that was Again, we talked about that in our class, but she mentions it. And I think it's really important to that same point, um, approaching it and thinking, what does this mean to you? And and why is it, again, kind of like the, the honor killing example that you shared, where it was a mother that was perpetuating and perpetrating this, this um, patriarchal honor norm. A woman was the one who was perpetrating it. And that's, that's the case in female genital cutting, too. It's women who do this to other, to girls, but it's in order to, to maintain the norms of, of patriarchal culture. But one more example that I wanted to share of this same thing is from chapter nine. And um, this is where Melinda Gates is very humble about her own response. So this is a part where Melinda Gates had gone to Laos and Burma And she was working or she was talking with a woman who was working locally for the foundation. And this woman asked her uh, right when she arrived, she she asked Melinda Gates, if you were a woman and you were born here, what would you do to keep your children alive? What lengths would you go to? And Melinda Gates says, I was startled by the question. So I stalled for a minute and tried to put myself in that scene. Okay, well, I would get a job. Oh, but I'm not educated. I can't even read. But I would teach myself to read. But with what books? And I'm not going to get a job because there are no jobs. I'm in a remote region. I was trying to come up with an answer when she interrupted my thinking and said, do you know what I would do? I said, no, what would you do? She answered, well, I've lived here for two years now. I know the options. I would be a sex worker. It would be the only way I could put food on the table. It was a shocking thing to say. But after taking the whole trip in and reflecting for a while, it struck me that saying the opposite thing would have been even more shocking. If you say, oh, I would never do that, then you're saying you would let your kids die. And you're saying, I'm above these people. She had worked with sex workers on other health crises, so her question to me had an edge to it, implied but still powerful. How can you partner with them if you think you're above them? And I thought that was just to your point, another illustration of that, of needing to approach these topics with empathy and having a real open mind and seeking to really understand what the options are for these women, what their lives really feel like. And then I I do want to share one last thing because it's an inspiring story of a successful intervention. So she talks about how sex workers in India were 
frequently harassed and beaten and raped by police, and they didn't know what to do. And so the women devised a system where they would call, you know, a 911, again, a helpline. And what would happen is that the other sex workers would come rushing to their aid. And so 12 to 15 of their friends would come running, accompanied by a pro bono lawyer and someone from the media, like with a microphone and a video camera to film what was happening. This immediately put a stop to the abuse and the practice spread all over India. And I just loved that story. And I, I actually also read an article during our class about women in India doing this exact thing to stop domestic violence. A woman could call a number if her husband was beating her. And a huge crowd of neighbors, a huge crowd of women would gather around the house to socially shame that husband. And it's really effective. And it reminded me of the, the great apes bonobos, which are a, a very close relative of humans. I've talked about them before, but they're the only matriarchal primates. And the females are proportionately just as much smaller than males as human females are to males in general. But bonobos have learned to work together so that if a male gets aggressive with a female, a group of females surrounds that male and they'll bite his, you know, they'll bite him like and and threaten him with physical harm and ostracism. And they keep their groups peaceful, actually, and they maintain order by the females who, again, are smaller and not as strong, but they band together and they work together to support each other. And so I was really, really inspired by those stories of women coming together and actually not even implementing violence, but just using that, that you know, social shame to, to hopefully awaken that man's conscience and think like, wait, what am I doing? I'm, I'm harming someone. So anyway, I loved that. But that brings us to the end of the discussion, Sarah. This was so enlightening. And I'm just wondering if we can wrap up by having you share maybe a takeaway or two from the book. Sure. So my... I think key takeaway from Melinda's book was that women need allies to help lift them, to help them reach their full potential. And in fact, the last point you made about sort of the women banding together, coming out to support each other is sort of a perfect example of that, you know, sort of women, whether it's the strength in numbers um, to coming out and shame a, a man who is being physically abusive to, to her, his wife or, you know, helping other women reach their potential. So there's that, you you referenced the story at, at the start of the podcast where Melinda shares, I think at the beginning of her book about one of the pivotal moments of lift for her. And this was her high school teacher, Mrs. Bauer, who spent her own time and money to take computer science classes at night so, so that she could teach Melinda and her classmates computer science in the morning. And I think that is just such an incredible example of not only just women helping women, but laying a really strong foundation for girls. Um, and then similarly, in, in my family, as I shared my, the story of my grandmother, Jamila, she had her allies, her mother and her brother, who helped her in her journey to get the education that she so wanted. Um, my mother had her allies in my father and grandmother when she arrived as a newly married young woman, 
So that's been the biggest takeaway from this book for me, that as women, we all need allies to help us achieve our goals and realize our dreams. Hmm. Beautiful. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Sarah. Truly, again, it was just such a pleasure. And I learned so much from your personal stories. And I'm so inspired by the work that you're doing with girls education in Pakistan. So thank you so much for being a part of our conversation today. Thank you. Oh, Amy, thank you for including me. It was an absolute honor and a pleasure to do this podcast with you. Well, thanks again. And thanks to listeners. Thanks for being with us today. And on our next episode of Breaking Down Patriarchy, we'll be reading and discussing the book For the Love of Men by Liz Plank, which was published in 2019. So this book will take us back to the United States and it examines our concepts of masculinity and how patriarchal scripts harm boys and men. So give it a read if you can. And then either way, whether you're able to read it or not, Join us for the conversation about For the Love of Men by Liz Plank next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. 